Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a lawyer specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. And today I've got Susie Allegre, who's a colleague of mine at Doughty Street Chambers. And we're going to be talking about freedom of thought and tech. An absolutely fascinating discussion, which I could have gone on for hours and hours. And I think we'll probably follow it up on multiple occasions. Before I introduce Susie, I'm going to remind you that the podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law and Undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. To learn more, visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. You can support the podcast if you find it interesting and illuminating and you want it to continue. Go to patreon.com forward slash better human and if you can contribute just a couple of pounds a month that would make a huge difference and make the podcast sustainable if you want to contact me you can email me at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com or find us on twitter be human podcast that's the letter b now to introduce susie my guest for today she's a barrister at doughty street chambers an adjunct assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin and an honorary research fellow at Roehampton University. She specialises in human rights, governance, freedom of thought and technology. She works with the national human rights institutions and the judiciary in various jurisdictions, as well as international organisations such as the European Parliament, the Council of Europe and the Office of the UN High Commissioner of Human Rights. And She comes from the Isle of Man and she's also the director of the Island Rights Initiative, which focuses on the human rights of small island communities. So let's start from the beginning of where freedom of thought comes from and where it's protected in the international human rights law world. Well, the idea of freedom of thought is a relatively new idea in the history of humanity. I mean, if we go back um, a few centuries and find... Um, Galileo being put under house arrest for having radical views that the world uh, was perhaps not flat and was perhaps not the centre of the universe um, as the church had decreed. Um, We can see that in history there wasn't a presumption that people should be allowed to think for themselves and and have new and progressive uh, ideas. That's something that developed over time. Um, Philosophically, It was an idea that really started to have its moment um, with the Enlightenment um, in Europe in particular, uh, with the French Revolution. And you see the whole idea uh, of freedom of thought starting to take shape um, in the Declaration on the Rights of Man. And also through philosophers like uh, J.S. Mill's work on liberty. But from an international human rights law perspective... Uh, the first time we see the right to freedom of thought put down explicitly in law is in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights in Article 18 of the UDHR. Everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. That right shall include the freedom to have or adopt a religion or belief of his choice and freedom either individually or in community with others in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice and teaching. Um, No one shall be subject to coercion which would impair his freedom to have or adopt a religion or belief of his choice. Um, freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject to various limitations such as protecting public safety, order, health or morals, kind of standard wording in the limit in the limited rights, so the, the rights that are um, qualified. Um, and that's reflected almost word for word in the European Convention on Human Rights as well. Yes, absolutely. And what I think is interesting about the wording is that it seems that thought encompasses conscience and religion so thought is the sort of all-encompassing idea but what's important about the right to freedom of thought is that there are two aspects of it there's an internal aspect so what goes on inside the privacy of my own mind what's known as the forum internum and an external aspect which is when I start to tell you what I think which is when we're then getting into the realms of manifestation of religion and belief or freedom of expression The difference between those uh, two elements of the right is very important from a legal perspective. Because once I start telling you what I think, then there are limitations, as you've outlined in the right, 
um, to protect the rights of others or for national security or other reasons. So there are justifications for limiting what comes out of my mouth as a result of what I'm thinking. However, when you look at what goes on purely inside my head, there can never be an interference with that. And that is because that part of the right is what's known as an absolute right, which means that nobody can ever interfere with it for any reason. I mean, I have to admit that when I've, when I've read these rights in the past, and I've done lots of work on particularly freedom of religion, I've always skirted over the thought bit because, and, I, and, and, and I've seen it as well, you have a right, an absolute right to hold a religious view. So to, to be a member of a particular religion. And as you say, when you start going into the world and doing things that are, come out of that belief, then you can potentially get into, in, in the way of the rights of others or in the way of public morals or, or whatever. And that's where the limiting, limitation comes from. But I've never really given much thought to, to thought to what does it actually mean to have an unlimited freedom of thought well, I think uh, one of the issues around the way that the right has developed um, over the last 70-odd years has been that the very little commentary uh, that there was on it in the 20th century has essentially said, well, yes, I have an absolute right uh, to think what I like inside my own mind. But of course, that doesn't matter because no one can get inside my mind anyway. So it was almost just an assumption that, well, de facto, I have this right but I don't need any protections for it because if you like, my skull is the protection uh, uh, for the right. And we hadn't sort of got uh, much further than that. Um, but what I think um, has changed certainly since then, if that was ever true, which I think um, given the amount of money put into advertising and marketing industries to try and get inside people's minds, um, it's arguable that it was never in, entirely um, true. But now when we look at developments in technology, um, we can see that certainly uh, one of the aims of certain aspects of technological development is precisely to get inside our minds and understand how they work. I mean, it, it, it's, it is quite surprising that that hasn't received a lot of attention given the origins of the, particularly the Universal Declaration of the European Convention coming out of t totalitarianism, whose purposes, you know, think of Goebbels and the propaganda in the, in the Nazi state, the purposes were to get in people's minds and to change the way they think. And, and, and it was a very overt and successful purpose. But has that been, do you think that's been slightly overlooked because thankfully the states that we're talking about that are protected are not totalitarian, they're democratic states where you don't necessarily see as overt manipulation, although it still happens? I think that's probably right. And I think one of the reasons it's been overlooked is because to a large extent, the attempts to get inside our mind, and certainly, if you like, Western democracies, have come from the private sector. It has been about advertisers or marketers, or it's been about campaigns um, to sort of promote health and safety or make us um, better citizens, if you like. So it's always been viewed in a... In a a slightly um, innocuous way or as something that's coming very much from the business community and the private sector rather than being government driven. Or maybe people just see governments as generally incompetent at marketing and getting into people's heads because there's always a fierce, you know, if we're thinking about the, we're sitting here during the election campaign and, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of back and forth over, well, you, you know, your line and your attempt to manipulate this debate by setting up fake social media accounts, and that sort of thing. But it's always usually countered very quickly. So how successful it is, is, you know, it, it, it is an open question. I think that's right. But I think in terms of the right to freedom of thought, um, that is in a way a red herring. Uh, because I think when you look at, as I say, what various areas of developments in technology are trying to do or are saying that they can do, there is certainly an attempt to get inside our heads. 
There's a huge gap in regulation, and I think that that is one of the the big problems, that people get stuck on the idea of whether or not Cambridge Analytica was successful. But if you look at what Cambridge Analytica said it wanted to do in terms of behavioural micro-targeting, it was effectively identifying how people think and react to things on a pretty granular level, and then using that information to provide messaging that will press their individual psychological buttons in order to produce particular behaviours. Whether or not they could actually do that, I think is slightly beside the point. The question is whether or not anyone should be allowed to try to do that. Yeah, well, well that's absolutely fascinating discussion. So let's start from the beginning of yes. that discussion, which is, I guess, before you get to Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica can't exist without the data yeah. which it exploited. And the data it exploited couldn't have existed but for Facebook, who are in the business of you know, having billions of people expressing their everyday thoughts, views, you know, in all sorts of different ways. And they analyze the data and they sell it to advertisers. Um, and that seems to be you know, that is a new situation that hasn't really existed in history before the last 10, 15 years. So, so how does that, how do we start conceptualizing that in the terms of freedom of thought? Well, I think it, it's useful. And I mean, it's not at all to say that Facebook is by any means the only company engaging in this sort of activity of trying to understand how we think based on large amounts of data and selling that. It's become very much um, a global business model uh, for technology. Um, But I think Facebook's quite a useful prism to look through, um, in part because there are two really interesting um, experiments in the past 10 years um, that that used Facebook as their basis um, for research. The first one of those um, was about assessing what you could tell about someone's personality um, based on the big five character traits by analysing their likes. So you mentioned the big five personality traits. And I think that it's right to say that is openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness and neuroticism. And this comes out of decades of research of uh, empirical research on how people react to different situations and they're identified as generally accepted different prisms through which people view the world and and behave in the world. Yes absolutely Um, and so this research took those five big five character traits took a large sample of Facebook users um, and looked at how accurately it could predict the personality based on those big five based on a section of of likes on Facebook and it was a relatively small number I think it was around 10 likes on Facebook and as the the numbers increased it sort of went from Facebook knows you better than your friends your workmates your partner your mother Um, so it was this idea that based on not what you said on Facebook not even the way you've expressed yourself, but just the things that you've decided to like uh, on Facebook, they could pretty accurately assess what kind of person you are and what kind of psychological buttons, if you like, um, operate in your mind uh, as an individual. Because these big five five character traits are not just of academic interest, they're of significant interest to advertisers. Absolutely. That's the whole, that's one of the big, you know, models that advertisers use to like you say try and predict which buttons to press yeah so if we want to sell coca-cola to a group that doesn't drink coca-cola at the moment maybe they find out that agreeable people don't drink coca-cola for whatever reason because it's seen as a particular kind of brand then they will they will bespoke they'll design their advertising to push agreeable people's buttons yes and that's why it's so important to know because they know which audience they're gunning for and, and how they can affect them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about this research is that it really highlights the problem of the line between the internal and the external. So I might like a funny cat video uh, and I might like some article about Salvador Dali. I don't necessarily 
um, understand by liking those two things that I am giving away information about myself in the same way that I might understand that if I'd written a Facebook post uh, for my friends. And so I think that really raises the question about where is that line between me deciding to express my thoughts so that you can hear them, understand them and criticize them and the idea that I'm thinking about things inside my head. And that's, Facebook is only one one element of the of this data capture because we've also got our, I'm wearing a smart smartwatch at the moment that might be monitoring my heart rate and my exercise levels. Amazon Echoes that are listening to what we're saying even when we're not talking to the actual machine. Google, which is monitoring our search activity. So this is quite a rich view of the individual that, that all these companies are putting together. Absolutely. And um, the author and economist Shoshana Zuboff in her book that came out earlier this year, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, identifies this whole business model as one of surveillance capitalism, that we are effectively allowing every tiny bit of our lives uh, to produce data that could be interpreted to get a really granular picture uh, of who we are, how we think, um, and to try to understand what buttons to press, what we might do next, what we might be thinking about doing next, and to sort of be able to then sell that information uh, for either um, economic sort of financial purposes or, and or political purposes. So if we go back now to the language of the human rights treaties we're talking about and think about what they what they would have been worried about, what is it about that mass data capture that you think fits within the original framework or at least the framework as it now should evolve in the in the current world? Well, the framework for protecting the right to freedom of thought has three really key elements. So the first one is the right not to be coerced into revealing your thoughts. And that, I think, is where what I've just talked about, that analysis of the data, is effectively taking my thoughts away from me without me actively sharing them uh, with the world. So there's no active conscious decision from me to share my thoughts. Is that the same as being coerced? I think that's a question which is going to develop over time and through the courts. So it's about coercion, but it's also about the right to keep my thoughts private. So how that will actually operate in practice, I think is, is an open question. So what, what would have been the, when the that principle developed about not being coerced what did what was it in the context of i haven't come across any cases um but the the context of coercion i suppose goes back to what you were talking about earlier of authoritarian uh, regimes and particularly um the nazi regime and the idea um that people uh, could be put in huge danger for revealing particularly whether it was their religion or whether it was um, controversial ideas they might have or internal aspects of themselves which could have fatal consequences in Nazi Germany. So it was this idea that I should never have to be forced to say what I'm thinking or to reveal my thoughts or beliefs. And, and that might come up in the context of a job application where you're asked, well, what do you think about, you know, and you can still see that happening now to an extent. What do you think about a particular issue that has nothing to do with the job, but is, you know, relevant to the, to the individual who's interviewing you or the, or the company? Absolutely. And you can see it in sort of judicial oath taking and that sort of thing. And in some countries where you have to take an oath on, on the Bible in order to become a judge and, and that sort of area. Um, so that's been where it's been looked at up until now. Um, but as I say, I think we're now in very new territory where inferences can be made about what I'm thinking without me having any idea where those inferences are coming from in terms of my daily activities. Yeah. I, and I suppose that there's, there's, like you said, there's various different uses for that or potential uses. 
perhaps the most benign, although still you still may say it's not that benign, is advertisers saying, well, I'm, you know, this person has been doing lots of Google searching about fitness, so I'm going to try and sell this person a bike, something like that. And, and people do talk about the slightly creepy um, specific, specificity of adverts that come up on their internet searches. Then I think on the spectrum, we get more towards the political side of things where adverts are being shown to us, political adverts that are pressing our buttons. And we didn't even know they knew what our buttons were, but they are making us think in a particular way and maybe in a slightly misleading way. Well, I think that then comes to the second plank of the protection of the right to freedom of thought. So I've talked about the right to keep your thoughts private or not to be coerced into revealing your thoughts. The second important part of the protection is the right not to have your thoughts manipulated. And that is where you get into the targeting. So if you like, the first part is what you might call profiling, where you're trying to work out what I'm thinking. Uh, and the second part is the targeting and the targeting for manipulation. Um, and as you rightly said, that can happen in, in very many uh, different contexts. The advertising context, I think, is interesting because it's so all-pervasive. Um, but as I said earlier, given that the right to freedom of thought is absolute, if what we're talking about in terms of micro-targeting of adverts is an interference with the right to freedom of thought, if it steps across that boundary to be manipulating the thoughts inside my head, then that type of advertising can't be allowed. And I think it's very interesting when you look uh, back in the 20th century, how we had legislation preventing subliminal advertising on the television. Um, so preventing advertisers from using techniques that bypass our rational proce processes and our, and our reason. And yet somehow along comes the internet and everybody forgets about how important <laughs> that concept uh, of protecting us from advertising that goes behind our rational faculties is. That, that's a really interesting example because it's sub subliminal advertising. It's kind of gone away now, this idea. The, um, I remember reading quite a lot at some point about the advertisers putting in brief flashes of particular images in other videos that you wouldn't be able to see consciously, but your subconscious maybe is picking them up. And I think there's probably questions about whether that works or not. But it's obviously, a, it's, an, it's such an obvious surreptitious manipulation that I suppose morally, we all think the same. We all think, well, I don't want my subconscious being spoken to while my conscious is being told something else. But then you get into the, the gr more gray areas of, well, can there be a manipulation going on because I'm being targeted with my buttons being pressed without really realizing it, without understanding how specific the advert that I'm being shown is? I think that is, that is the big question. And I think it remains to be seen how that will pan out. But I think there is an argument to be said that subliminal advertising equates to this surreptitious psychological button pressing. Um, and I think certainly if you look at the way this kind of advertising is developing, it's being designed in ways that are supposed to be able to sell things because they are hitting buttons that we're not even aware are there. And I think what changes from traditional advertising, where I walk past the bus stop and see an advert which is designed to appeal to a certain part of the public, which I may be one of, is that the advertising I'm getting online is often targeted at me personally, based on information that's been extracted about me from things like just walking around with a smartphone in my pocket. And how does that fit with another kind of manipulation, which is the the manipulation of, the, particularly on smartphones, of addictive behavior, using addictive behavior, exploiting addictive behavior to sell you know, microtransactions on very addictive games or I'm thinking particularly for children, not least because my children sit and play on their phones like I think most, a lot of children do, these kind of Candy Crush type games. And you hear lots of stories about children 
drumming up thousands of pounds of bills without the parents even realising because they're being subtly manipulated into doing that without even realising it. Um, but does that come into thought or is that something more to do with behaviour? I think it is about thought because it's about technology being used to manipulate thoughts to produce the behaviour that is desired by the people who are selling things and probably not, as you've said, by the parents of the children uh, concerned. So I think in terms of children's rights, I think it's a really complex and difficult area. Um, And I think when you look at this question of addictive technology, and I mean, anyone who has a child uh, will know how difficult it is to get the child to put down whatever screen it is. And I think what's interesting is a lot of the debates around children's rights have gone about dangerous content. But actually, I think there's a more fundamental problem, which is about the design of the technology itself to create precisely the addictive behaviours you're talking about. And I think that's problematic, whether or not it is about selling things or even the way it's used in educational technology. So you'll find that the same psychological tricks used in gaming are also then being used to teach your children their times tables, for example, in order to get them to want uh, to do it. But I think we're in a really difficult time at the moment because while uh, tech companies are being allowed to use psychology in order to drive use, we still don't know precisely what the impacts are what the effects are, and what that will mean long-term for our children's ability uh, to think for themselves freely. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So we were, we were on number two of three of the three sort of elements of protecting thought. So what's the third? The third element is that you should not be penalised for your thoughts. And again, that links back to the first part Uh, where if your thoughts can be extracted, they can never, if you like, be put back in the box once they're out of your your mind. This goes to the idea that you should never suffer negatively, if you like, for what's going on inside your head, as opposed to what you may say or how you may behave. But you should never be penalised for the ideas uh, that you have. And again, we start getting into territory where you think about 20th century writers, you know, like George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, you start thinking about uh, Big Brother and the Thought Police, you start thinking about the Minority Report, and you think, well, this is all just science fiction, it's dystopian. And and Minority Report, in Minority Report, there's a step further from 1984, because they're they're actually looking into, quote unquote, the future, and punishing people for what they haven't even done yet. Exactly. And that is why this protection of inside your mind is so important. The analysis of the data, and that precisely goes goes partly to the manipulation, but also to the penalizing for thoughts, is that based on the data gathered and the assumptions that are being made about how you think um, and how you feel, risk analyses are being made. And those are being made both in the private sector, whether it's about whether or not you can get insurance for something or credit, but they're also being made uh, in the public sector in terms of risk assessments being made on on risks of susceptibility to radicalization or that sort of thing. The most clear example of where this danger lies uh, at the moment is probably in China and the social credit system in China where you see masses of data on individuals being brought in, and not only on individuals, but it's also on the individuals that are connected to them, their family and friends, how they behave, what they do, where they go. This masses of data is then being gathered and used to decide whether or not an individual is a good citizen. 
And that assessment is then used to decide whether or not they can do things like travel on a train or a plane or, or what kind of opportunities are open to them. And so it really is a system where what's being inferred from the data that's being about, gathered about you and all those around you is then being used to penalise assumptions about what you're thinking, how you think um, and how you might behave. And that social credit scheme, I think it's not very well known, that social credit scheme, but that seems to me, if you went back to 1948 and spoke to the drafters of the European Convention and explained to them what technology would be available in 75 years, they would probably say, oh, well, I'll tell you what will happen. <laughs> because we've just lived through the totalitarian regimes across Europe. We're, we're seeing the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. Yes. And this is what they're going to do. This is what the Stasi are doing with with our data. Um, this is how they operate. And this is exactly how they're going to, they're going to form some sort of score. Yeah. And the score will be based on inferences about your beliefs and how amenable you are or how objectionable you are um, in the context of the beliefs of the state and the good of the state. Because that's classic totalitarian it, behavior. It is, absolutely. But what we have now is a sort of free-for-all on the data, which means that this is open pretty much to anyone to go and make some kind of assessment um, in ways that, you know, with the Stasi, there would have been different sources of data, but it would have been slightly harder for them it was expensive. to get the data. They had to actually spy on people to get the data. You know, there was there's just the most enormous effort. And now, by contrast, we're all just said, right, here's all our data. Absolutely. In, you know, enjoy um, our data. I'm going to comment on Thing on, on news items every minute of every day. I'm going to tell you how fast my heart's beating. I'm going to tell you where I am in, in every minute of every day. Here you go, state or company. Here it is. Do what you want with it. And that's quite different. It is, absolutely. And it also means that, you know, the, the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you and we've both got our smartphones uh, then means that, you know, what I think and, and feel and how I behave is, is ultimately connected to you. Um, so the net, if you like, goes extremely broadly. Um, but I think what's also interesting is the way that technological developments are moving. So this free-for-all, if you like, on our data and, and the access that that gives or it's hoped that that gives um, to our minds and, and our feelings. The current direction of travel for, for Facebook and also um, Elon Musk with his Neuralink are looking into it is, sorry, what, what's what's that? Sorry, the, <laughs> that, that that sounds pretty frightening. Yes, well, Facebook calls it uh, the brain computer interface, and mm. Elon Musk calls it Neuralink. But essentially, what they are about is research to develop a way to directly read our thoughts without us having uh, to put those thoughts down either by voice commands or by using a keyboard or any other way, which could have some and will have some amazingly useful and important outcomes. For example, people who are disabled, people who are, who are um, unable to move their limbs may have artificial limbs that can react to their thoughts rather than having to, um, you know, blinks of the eye or, or however they do it now. Yes, I think that's right. I think what the problem is, and often these kind of developments are billed as being a great opportunity for people, for example, as you say, with locked-in syndrome. But at the moment, we have no proper regulatory and legal framework to limit uh, what those developments mean. Um, and I remember um, listening to um, the spokesperson from Facebook uh, talking about this great new development, which is moving faster than we can even imagine, and saying, of course, we'll only um, access the thoughts you want us to, right? <laughs> which sounded well, highly fine. unlikely to I mean, me. <laughs> fine, absolutely fine. Get to take them. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind. I think we've mapped the 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 very important changes in technology, the original purposes of freedom of thought and where it came from. Now, I don't think that genie is going to get back into the bottle because the technology is here, and I think it's we are giving away our data. The question is, can there be some 
changes in regulation or in our general culture and attitude towards our data and how, how we share it that could fit within the human rights framework and allow us to have some level of autonomy that is slowly being taken away by the companies and by governments at the moment? Yes, I mean, I would disagree with your sort of first assessment that the technology is there and the data is out there. So what can we do? I uh, think maybe there, I've drunk the Zuckerberg Absolutely, Kool-Aid. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely think um, that there is a window of opportunity to step back and think about what we are doing. Is this what we want for our future? Uh, and is this right? You know, we have through millennia made huge changes in our cultures and stepped back from practices that seemed all pervasive and economically sound uh, at the time, like child labor, slavery, things that whole communities uh, were involved in economically. We have stepped back and said, no, this is not right and this is not what we want for our future. And I think the UDHR, you know, was one of those moments in time where humanity stopped and paused and said, no, this is not what we want. As you said earlier, um, the changes and the rate at which our data is available and the rate at which these technological opportunities for reading our minds have been developing, um, it's all very recent. We're only talking 10 or 20 years or 30 years since the start of the World Wide Web. There is time uh, to turn it around if this is what we want to do. If we don't want our futures to be about both the state and the private sector being able to constantly read our minds and direct our minds uh, according to their will. But it does require a really big turnaround in the whole global technological business model and what would you propose in, in in what would be that what would that the ideal turnaround look like i think the ideal turnaround would look at the way technology interacts with us and the way we interact with technology from a perspective of the right to freedom of thought we've seen it being dealt with very much through privacy um, but then when you look at it through privacy, because privacy can be limited, you start seeing highly technical ways of nibbling at the edges of privacy, looking at proportionality, looking at ways uh, to, to bypass the right and sort of saying, well, we're not getting to the essence of the right. The right to freedom of thought, if you look at it through the right to freedom of thought prism, then you just need to decide where that line is around the forum internum, around the inside of my mind, and then just develop regulation that says that techniques um, can never be developed or used that aim to go beyond those lines. I mean, I, I'm just trying to conceptualize it because I think it's easy, it, it's easy to talk in, the big, in big terms about how to regulate. Yeah. But I think there is there is an element of the genie being out in the sense that people really like social media. They like being able to Google. And the reason you can Google is because, and the reason Google works is because Google aggregates all of the previous searches. Arguably, Google doesn't need to then use that aggregated data to sell to advertisers and equally Facebook. But people do want and like and get a lot from in terms of human contact, you know, um, networking with people around the world from these systems. So is, is what the proposal here is, is that all those systems are fine, but when you start to take individual data and target individuals or groups of individuals and sell that to advertisers or sell that to governments, you're crossing a line. Yes, I think that's right. And so I think it's about how you're using the data um, and why you're collecting it. And so I think that is what needs to be regulated is to just say, fine, yes, people want to use social media, but there needs to be a social media business model that does not mean that using social media is effectively allowing a free-for-all on your internal psychological workings. 
I mean, I'm thinking that the, the example that comes into my mind is medical data, um, because you know I, I, I do a lot of work in in areas of law where you'll have medical records, and medical records are quite carefully um, controlled. And there's a there's a obviously things go wrong, but on the whole, the principle is your medical records are yours, and if a doctor or a nurse shares those with somebody they shouldn't have then they can be um they can be potentially disciplined or prosecuted and that seems to be quite carefully controlled whereas our personal data that we put in through social media about our political views or about our philosophical beliefs or about our religion is just almost entirely unprotected but i suppose one difference is that our personal that personal data we're putting out into the wild through social media, either to a group of friends or to the world, in which case the the, the argument might be: Well, it, once you are putting it out there, it's not you've you've lost the opportunity to control how it's used. Well, I think I mean the first question is is about this inevitability question, and again, um, Shoshana Zuboff in her her book on surveillance capitalism talks about the smart home and how the initial idea for the smart home was that it would be a closed circuit. So that you would have all this fantastic functionality, but it would just be a matter for the person whose home it was uh, and the machines inside that home. But because of the drive of the surveillance capitalism business model, it's become almost universally accepted that having a smart home means giving away all the data from your smart home to whatever company it is that's providing uh, those uh, services for them to use as they would. But that is not an inevitable way uh, for the data to be used. And I think, again, as you're, when you talk about the data being out in the wild, I think there is a difference between what I write on Facebook and what is being extrapolated, again, from me walking around with my smartphone in my pocket or, or your Apple Watch or um, that information, I don't think is information that we are consciously sharing with our friends or with anybody, but it's almost impossible to switch it off on yeah. our devices. And also on Facebook, most people have a closed circuit of friends. Yes. Um, and maybe certain friends of friends will see certain things, but there are privacy settings. And it, most people will probably say, well, these, these anonymous advertisers are not my friends or friends yes. of friends. They're, they're, they're something quite different. And I'm not, I've not really thought when I was signing up to this, even though it's free, that I'm giving all this data to advertisers, to micro-target, to me, yes. or the Brexit party, or, or whoever happens to pay the, the biggest amount of money for my, yeah. my, my beliefs. Yes, so I think that's the thing about the question of data being out there in the wild, because, I mean, you talked about health data as well. Uh, and again, in Zuboff's book, she outlines how appallingly bad health applications are, including health applications that are sort of being pushed by legitimate governmental health organizations, are at protecting your data. So you think that you're giving whatever information it is to help you manage your eating or, or exercise routines or whatever it is uh, about your sensitive health data. But in fact, all the information that is going into that app, which includes all the information about where your phone is in relation to many apps, they're also accessing your microphone in ways that you might not uh, realize. All of that information is then being sold on. So even in the health tech world, when you put a medical app on your phone, that is not uh, secure in the way that you would expect, as you've described, uh, medical information between you and your doctor. Now, the European Union has attempted to address this issue through the General Data Protection Regulation, which does seem like quite a radical, different approach than what came before it was certainly a stronger approach do you think that is that just you know scratching the surface is that something which is valuable is privacy even the right prism to think about this all through i think the gdpr the general data protection regulation is hugely useful i mean and it's a massive step forward globally it's very clear 
uh, that Europe is where it's at in terms of trying to address these sorts of issues. Um, I think there are opportunities as well for incorporating the right to freedom of thought into readings of the GDPR because all European legislation needs to be read and understood through the prism of the EU Charter on Fundamental Rights, which itself uh, includes the right to freedom of thought. So when you're looking at applying European law, you have to be thinking about how it interacts with all of those rights down the way. So far, the way that the GDPR has been considered and the way that it's been argued in court has been almost exclusively around privacy. But there is one interesting um, exception which actually relates back to our own political situation. So in the UK, when the Data Protection Act came in last year, uh, at the same time as politicians were all up in arms about Cambridge Analytica and having dramatic um, evidence-taking sessions um, in Parliament, they all quietly passed the Data Protection Act with an exemption for political parties uh, to use information about our political opinions. That doesn't sound like a very good thing. In my view, it's not a very good thing, but understandably, all politicians think what a useful tool for targeting the electorate to vote for me. So as I say, it was interesting how this went through at the same time as there's all this uproar about Cambridge Analytica, uh, effectively, um, the law which would allow things like behavioural micro-targeting to continue was being passed quietly at the same time in, in the same parliament. That exemption in British law was picked up elsewhere as what a great idea, because obviously for politicians, it's a fantastic idea. We can get access to huge amounts of data, uh, which the private sector are now not allowed to do because of data protection. And, and just to pause there, would their argument be what we're doing here is not manipulating? We as elected representatives and or people who want to be elected just need to have as deep and as fine-grained an, uh, an understanding of what people actually want. Well, I think what the primary argument is, is that this exemption is about um, political engagement. So it's about getting the public involved in politics. But I mean, the scale of it is huge. And if you look at any of the political parties, um, privacy policies, you will see that they explicitly say... Uh, we have huge amounts of data on you that we get from all over the place. I mean, it's not just what they've gathered because you filled out a questionnaire for the party. It's your Experian information. It's your store cards. You know, it, it's enormous. And it's on pretty much everyone uh, in the country. So they say we have all this information because we're allowed to in law and we use it to profile and target you. So that's quite explicit in most of their privacy policies. And I thought it was interesting, uh, about a month ago, I think the Lib Dems uh, got sort of hit with accusations of profiling and targeting and using our data. And I really don't understand why this story was a story and why it was only about the Lib Dems, because as I say, it's not a secret. All of the major political parties are collecting and using our data in and, this way. And not political parties, so non-political party actors, like thinking about the referendum campaign, yeah. Leave EU, yes. Vote Leave, all these, you know, the Cambridge Analytica, um, that, that was, these are not necessarily even political parties. They're not, but they wouldn't be covered by this exemption because this exemption is specifically for political parties. So as I say, once the UK adopted this, other countries thought it was a good idea, and among them was Spain. So Spain introduced a similar provision into its law, but Spain has uh, what's called a public defender, the Defensor del Pueblo, who effectively sort of stands up for constitutional rights in Spain. So the Spanish Defensor del Pueblo took a constitutional challenge against the Spanish version uh, of this law to the Spanish Constitutional uh, Court. 
And interestingly, their arguments included privacy. So they were using European data protection law and they were using Spanish constitutional law, including the right to private life. But they also said this uh, provision is against what in the Spanish constitution is called ideological liberty or ideological freedom, which is, if you like, an amalgam of the right to freedom of thought and freedom of opinion. Uh, But that's the way it's protected in Spanish constitutional law. But this is the only place so far where I've seen this argument being run. The constitutional court ultimately decided that the provision was unlawful and unconstitutional. They decided it in the end on the privacy grounds, I suppose, because that was the easier ground, because there's a lot more precedent uh, on privacy. So they didn't throw out the ideological freedom argument. Um, They discussed it, but they then decided that they didn't need to make a decision on that basis because they already decided it was unlawful on privacy grounds. But I thought it was very interesting to see that this idea of freedom of thought and freedom of opinion and ideological freedom in the political sphere was being raised Uh, and discussed in a legal challenge. And I hope that going forward, we'll see more of this kind of discussion uh, in legal cases. I think where I wanted to finish was a tension which has come up, I think is is in the background of a lot of our discussions and, and these discussions generally, which is that the human rights protections were designed specifically to constrain states. So they were really focused on totalitarian states you know where the state held the power and now, and what we're talking about here is on the uh, uh, to a significant extent private companies who are almost quasi states because they are controlling elements of the public sphere that used to be the the sole um sole, under the sole authority of of states do you think that human rights laws are fit for purpose in that sense? Or do you think we need to radically rethink the original concepts um, to fit private companies and, and also multinational private companies? I think human rights laws are fit for purpose. I mean, on the one hand, while, as, as you say, human rights laws were designed to constrain st- states, they also put obligation on states to protect us from each other and from companies. And so the first line of attack, if you like, or the first way to use uh, the human rights law is to say to states, you actually have an obligation to protect us from the activities of, of companies that are interfering with our absolute right to freedom of thought. So there is an obligation on states to regulate. There is an obligation on states to bring in uh, adequate legal protections uh, to ensure that we continue to have our right to freedom of thought. So that is one way um, of using human rights law to move the situation uh, forward. But that assumes that the state can constrain the multinational corporation. Well, it assumes that the state can and also that the state wants to, <laughs> which, is a, which is a different matter. But I think you can begin um, to say that the state needs to find ways Uh, to constrain the multinational corporation, at least within its sphere. And you see that in Europe with things like uh, the General Data Protection Regulation, that it is aiming to find ways to limit the impact of whatever um, big data and, and big technology companies want to do with our data for those of us who are within the European space for the time being. And I think that's an interesting example because... The reason, in my analysis anyway, is the reason the EU can achieve that in principle is because it's so big and it's and it's powerful enough because it you know covers hundreds of millions of people in multiple states that it can take on Facebook. I mean, for example, by saying we're going to fine you up to whatever large percentage of your of your revenue if you breach this regulation and that could seriously damage Facebook, not in a, not like the electoral commission or the information commissioner's office can hear, um, although, you know, pre GDPR. So at least the EU is big enough to take on these multinational corporations, but I'm not sure individual states, apart unless you're gigantic, have much of a hope. 
I think you're right. I think it's very difficult. I think you either have to be gigantic or tiny <laughs> to to address these issues. Uh, and one of the problems with addressing it is that, you know, increasingly access to the internet is considered in human rights terms in, ter in terms of there being a right to access the internet because increasingly access to services, the way we develop ourselves, all of these things are happening online. So actually preventing someone from going online uh, is in itself problematic from a human rights perspective as the world becomes increasingly uh, interconnected. And so there can always be the threat for a moderate-sized country uh, that technology companies are going to switch off the lights, if you like, uh, and not allow them to progress economically, socially, uh, and culturally by restricting their access. And I thought there was a very interesting pushback, actually, um, in the European Parliament elections uh, by Twitter in France, where France introduced really stringent um, laws around political advertising and political advertising online. And so Twitter then barred the French government from a get the vote out campaign on Twitter by saying that they couldn't run it because it was in contravention of the French law on political advertising. I think they later backed down. Uh, but you can see how um, multinational corporations can push back on individual countries' attempts to address these issues uh, on an individual basis. And so I think you're absolutely right that the European Union at the moment is at the heart of the pushback because it's so big and so economically and, and politically strong at the moment that it's in a position uh, to gather its forces to try to direct the digital future in a way that it thinks is, is appropriate and in line with its values of human rights and democracy. Well, and Twitter has now said they're going to ban political advertising, which is a really interesting development, um, although it wouldn't stop kind of viral campaigns, which don't rely on paid advertising. Yes. But they are going to ban the advertising which specifically buys into the data generated by the algorithm or the by manipulates the algorithm yes. in a particular way, which is quite inter an interesting development. I think it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think at the moment, it, it's a really complex area and clearly different technology companies are taking different approaches to dealing with it and different countries are taking different um, approaches to dealing with the way political um, advertising is dealt with online. I don't think there's a very clear answer, but I think one of the problems with the ways many people have been looking at it is that there's been a big focus on content. So when you look at disinformation, there's been a big focus on, well, what is disinformation? You know, what is untruth? What is just opinion? And a big focus on looking at the content, which then takes you into bigger questions of freedom of expression. In my view, the bigger problem is the method of delivery. It's about the algorithm. It's about the way information is being delivered to people. Because you might see one advert, one message, you might read it, it may have no real impact on the way you're thinking about something, or you might just think, well, that's interesting, and, and walk away. But if you're being bombarded with messages in a targeted way, and messages that you might not even realize are politically motivated messaging, then that gets, again, back to that question of bypassing your rational faculties. I think YouTube is probably the be the better example, in a way, yes. of the use of the algorithm. Because YouTube, and, and I'm not even thinking about political, yeah. but maybe political with a soft P. So taking you, people describe it, down the rabbit hole yeah. of conspiracy theories, yes. uh, you know, anti-vaxxers, um, anti-Semitic yeah. content, you know, that, that kind of stuff that where you just start by seeing something which is completely fairly benign, you know, video yeah. about... Oh, isn't it interesting? I wonder how, you know, what's the latest theory on the JFK assassination? Yep. And then it's, well, what about 9-11? And then it's, what about the, yes. uh, what's going on with the elites taking over, the globalists taking over, yep. the, the secret clubs taking over the world? Yep. And before you know it, you're, um, you're turning up at, you know, the Tommy Robinson march. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, I think what's interesting about that as well is the, the scale of the content. So it's the direction down the rabbit hole. Um, 
but you know there've been reports about facebook employees who are um having to work or working as content moderators and again this is the problem where uh people are being put in a position where they're having to try and decide whether or not content is in line with or not uh, facebook's policies so content moderators dealing with extreme material that the sheer scale of the material that they are looking at has landed up twisting their perceptions of the world and potentially putting them in a position where they're becoming radicalized by having to look at so much because um, the content is just so powerful it's so good at getting getting into our thoughts that even the mo- even the moderators are being taken in well i think it's also about the quantity of the content the sort of the style and the quantity of the content rather than the specifics of individual pieces of content so i think that is where the approach needs to shift that it's about methods of delivery and quantity rather than necessarily individual messages some individual messages are going to be clearly one way or another uh, but it's more about the content and i think again going back to a sort of literary analogy if you think about the clockwork orange uh, and the therapy that was used in the clockwork orange the ele- order- electro it was kind of electric shock and um and it, fast it, it, was fa- it was fast images with beethoven yes exactly <laughs> uh, and this is effectively the kind of impact i suppose that you're looking at when you're talking about going down the rabbit hole on youtube um that, that you've just mentioned and i think that is the issue yeah. it's about the method of delivery rather than individual pieces of content and and that as the, the algorithm the power of the algorithm you know, i think it's very much more straightforward for people to understand you know, Nigel Farage using data to send you images which are more likely to make you support him. I think it's much more difficult to get to understand the power of the algorithm, you know, sending you down the rabbit hole. I mean, I, I, I've been looking at um, TikTok recently because, um, you know, because apparently kids are very into it. And I yep. just wanted to, I just downloaded <laughs> it to see what, what was going on. And it is extraordinary. You just sort of find yourself half an hour later having watched like a hundred random videos and it and it's taking you through it in a it's sort of smoothly slotting into the way you're interacting and it's knowing how you're interacting and f- serving you up videos one after the other that are going to sli- are slightly more attractive to you than the last one how do you get into that through the context of of freedom of thoughts when all it's doing they would say is giving you what you really want. I think again it goes down to what the purpose of the algorithm is. So if the purpose of the algorithm is to take you down the rabbit hole and steal your attention for half an hour when you might otherwise just be staring into space, then that becomes questionable. It's about well why is the algorithm designed to do this? And that's where I think it's important to step back from the evidence of the impact and to look at actually what is the purpose behind this technology and if the purpose is to get inside my mind and take it in a certain direction then that purpose should not be allowed because it could be sending you to cat videos benign relatively but it could because your brain is just pushing in that direction is 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 telling the algorithm to go in a direction which moves from, you know, JFK assassination to um, modern racist ideologies. To a degree, yes, but I think it's important as well not to make too much of that distinction between pushing you into radical thought and benign cat videos. Because where I think we can sometimes get mixed up is that the benign cat videos may seem benign, but those cat videos may mean that I decide not to go out and vote. <laughs> and I think that's where we have to be really careful about making a difference between benign manipulations of our thought and malign manipulations of our thought. Also, there's a, there's a political value judgment involved in that dis- making that distinction, which in itself, maybe we don't want the tech companies or the government deciding wh- what's benign and what's not benign. Absolutely. Thank you so much, 
Susie for coming on the podcast. It was such an interesting discussion and I feel like it's one we, we can revisit and revisit as things progress. Well, it's a pleasure. Hopefully it's a discussion that will go on and on. <laughs> the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB law undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. To learn more, visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it and make it sustainable, then please consider giving a couple of pounds a month to patreon.com forward slash better human. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. You can contact me on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter, behumanpodcast. And I want to finally thank my editor, Samantha Bruff, and the research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames. This has been the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner. See you next time.